from the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame Stories. In this episode, Preparing for the Future. We look at the future of work and how technology may disrupt the modern marketplace. And for generations, indigenous people living in the Amazon basin have produced a common food staple. How Mendoza College of Business students are helping to ensure they'll continue to do so for generations to come. Well, I tell people, first of all, I think not to be, not to assume this dystopian view that this is going to be disruptive and destructive in ways that um, do not allow for a future for, for you or for your offspring, but rather um, take a more active position that this is a transition that needs to be managed and that we need our leaders, um, be they political leaders, um, be they business leaders, be they civil society leaders, educational leaders, to, to get on top of this issue quickly because the real issue for all of us is, can society keep up with the technology? Ray Offenheiser is the distinguished professor of the practice and director of the Notre Dame Initiative for Global Development. Is it your sense that people maybe don't understand just how pervasive the change that is on the horizon can be? And, and if so, could you give us maybe an overview of the breadth and depth of, of this shift that we're talking about? Well, I think most people have become aware that um, Uber is a new reality and most many people are taking advantage of it. And that's, I think, one very clear example. And then uh, of, of the use of our, you know, big data and artificial intelligence to kind of create new ways of doing things. But we see it in smaller ways. Just, you know, when you go to the CVS and you see um, that the cashier has disappeared and now you're checking out on your own or you go to Home Depot and you see the same thing. Um, there used to be cashiers in those roles. Um, and there's 3 million cashiers in the United States. And so if we imagine a world in which the, the role of a cashier becomes um, an anachronism and disappears, mm -hmm. um, that's 3 million jobs potentially that may disappear rather quickly. So I think people are beginning to fe you know, feel it and perceive it, but not necessarily understand it. And I think one of the interesting things at the current moment is uh, there's an assumption that um, – the issue of American jobs in the United States and loss of jobs has been largely owing to trade and the loss of jobs to, to countries overseas. But actually, there's one estimate that four out of five jobs have actually been already lost to automation, not mm. necessarily to, uh, to trade. And so I think more and more this is going to become central to the kind of debates we're having in the country. I think one of the things that's actually changed the conversation of late and has um, in some sense – uh, drawn this more into the public domain and gotten uh, political leaders uh, at various levels work, working on it, thinking about it. And it certainly got corporate executives thinking about it. For the corporate executives, it's about lowering costs and being more competitive. Uh, I think for political leaders, it's the, about the potential for social disruption mm. as a consequence of you know, labor market disruptions uh, across, across their, their economies. Uh, what I think is being perceived now is the original estimates were that, yes, this is going to happen, um, but it will unfold rather gradually, and probably we won't feel the effects of it until 2050, the middle of this century. But now I think the reality is that people are realizing that um, self-driving cars will be are already on the road. Now we're hearing reports of accidents. Hmm. We're hearing you know loss of life as a consequence of an accident with an, you know, uh, uh, an automated um, – automobile or self-driving automobile. So the current estimate is that we're going to see a lot of these changes a lot faster and a lot quicker than we had imagined. 
So there's some ways an acceleration in the rate of change that probably we're not prepared for and that we need to kind of get on top of quickly. And let me just give you one particular example. I uh, was at a meeting of a large mining company a few weeks ago, and uh, and they were having an internal conversation about the future of work and how it was going to affect their company and the communities in which they ran massive mines in various parts of the world and how they were having to you know roll out or they were planning to roll out large uh, investments in automating their technology. Now, what does that mean on a mine site? Well, in, for open pit mines, it means that the three-story high trucks that drive deep into open pit mines that are loaded with ore and then are driven to processing plants, um, and oftentimes there are scores and scores of these trucks that are operating in these pit mines, um, they're going to be moved to being automated vehicles. And in the case of this particular company, that is going to happen, um, well, it's happening right now in a pilot basis in one particular mine uh, where they've introduced this and they're experimenting with what it means and how well does it work and do the, car, you know, do the trucks stay on the road and you know, can they be coordinated in complex arrangements uh, during the course of a day and can that all be managed by, you know, in a faraway location from a, someone sitting in front of a computer screen in Melbourne, um, Australia. And uh, now they're thinking, well, okay, we may have figured out how to deal with all the technology, but then what does that mean for the community in which we may do this? and for the jobs that would be lost there, and what's our responsibility to that broader community in terms of thinking about this transition and maybe preparing that community for that transition. That whole process could be rolled out over the next five to six years, um, and that will transform the kind of the way that particularly mining corporation might be operating. Um, so these are things that I, these are conversations that are already underway, and the technology is there to make it happen. And so um, uh, I think, uh, you know, it's timely that we're starting to talk about these conversations in conferences and in uh, in various other kinds of fora. Hmm. You mentioned mining industry. You mentioned cashiers. Um, is there another sector of the economy or of society that may be most impacted by this shift? When we look at this, we tend to think, well, this is going to be really be about working class people. This is going to be about the cashiers. This is going to be about the truck drivers um, on Route 90 um, uh, crossing, crisscrossing the country. This is going to be about, um, you know, people operating large machinery or operating on an assembly line in a factory. The reality, however, is that this is going to be about paralegals. This is going to be mm. about lawyers. This is going to be about stock traders. This is going to be about the financial industry. This is going to be about white-collar jobs. That reality has not dawned on this country yet, and this has not dawned on, on the wider uh, population. That This is going to be ubiquitous. It's going to affect every single sector, um, and it's going to affect those sectors dramatically. And what is, in, so, in some sense, discussed um, in the circles where this is really being looked at is, is a world in which we will all, in theory, have more leisure – um, but there will be fewer jobs. Um, there will be lots of sort of jobs um, in sort of technical fields that are in support of these new approaches that are using the big data and that are in some sense driving these big systems. But the more traditional jobs um, that have been part of the industrial economy will disappear. And then the question is um, what jobs will replace them? And there is a consensus that there will be new jobs emerging out of this uh, out of this new digital economy, 
But they'll be very different and they'll require different kinds of skills. And uh, the question is, are we preparing people with the right skills for those new jobs? And we don't even know what those jobs are, so it's hard to know how to prepare people for those jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a moment of tremendous transition. We're at an inflection point uh, as a society and maybe as a civilization on a global level. Um, And I think we need to, you know, take a close look at this and figure out how we prepare. Is there a part of the world where we're starting to see the shift maybe accelerate a little more rapidly than than at large? And, And what are lessons that maybe can be learned there? I think in most of the world, it's unfolding as it's unfolding here, where it's it's visible to us. Uh, on a daily basis when we walk into a shop or we, you know, hear a news report about an autonomous vehicle or we take Uber. But I don't think we've really grasped the fact that the the technology is there to drive this on a much more accelerated basis. The one place where I think uh, they have taken it on board and are really driving it um, as part of national policy is China which seems a bit paradoxical in one sense, because there you have this enormous population, which, and you presume, you know, uh, it's a country that's, you know, been bringing millions of people out of poverty, and you would have thought there'd be a large labor surplus, so the last thing you'd want to be doing would be accelerating automation. But the Chinese are doing precisely that, and uh, to some degree, that has to do with the fact that their labor costs have been going up, and there are other countries with lower labor costs that are competing with them um, in a variety of different areas that in the past where they were perhaps dominant, textile being one of them. But they also have decided, you know, they want to be a leader in uh, technology on a global level, and they want to be, you know, designing and building the technology of the future for the global marketplace. So the leadership of China has decided to go full bore into um, rapid-scale uh, automation. And, um, and, and some, might, some commentators might, you know, argue that um, they're doing this, you know, wisely in terms of economic policy, but there may be social consequences for the rate at which they're doing it and for the fact that, you know, there is this potential for disrupting um, the labor market to such a degree that you then end up with a kind of a disenfranchised uh, group of workers who really can't find their way back into kind of uh, meaningful work and meaningful jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and that, of course, would be a reason for concern, not just in China, but, you know, everywhere where this disruption takes place. Is there, is there also reason for optimism? I mean, you know, anytime you talk about changing the way someone works and potential shifts in, in the way they make a living, that sparks concern. Is there a reason to be hopeful and optimistic about this shift? Well, I think the the um, the upside of this kind of technological change, uh, change is um, if we look back at, you know, the kinds of jobs people have had over the last two to three centuries, you know, there's been a lot of drudgery. There's been a lot of child labor. There's been a lot of... Um, really um, challenging jobs where, you know, there have been health consequences. People's length of life has been relatively short because of, you know, how arduous the work is that they've been doing. So in some sense, technology will make uh, work easier. And, um, you know, we will be living in a world where at least the technologists would say we we could potentially have more leisure. In other words, there's talk in some quarters about maybe we should institutionalize the four-day work week. you know, so this, you know, the idea would be, you know, that we, if we could build a society which could have a four-day work week and have full employment and meaningful employment, then, you know, th- this could work out to be quite good. I think the real question, though, is how are societies going to prepare to reorganize themselves to manage this? And if you think a little bit, if you make a comparison with the Industrial Revolution, if you have to realize that, you know, the, the Industrial Revolution probably began in the 1820s, 1830s in Europe – 
And out of that, you know, there were, the social sciences really grew in some sense as a response to the disruption of the, of the Industrial Revolution. The Industrial Revolution, um, in some sense, implemented it was implemented over, say, a 100, 120-year period. It was a relatively slower rollout than what we're going to see with this, this uh, rollout. Um, so I think what we have to do uh, in many ways is think about what are those societal changes that, we're going to, that are going to have to accompany the technological changes and think a lot about how um, people will interact with the technology. How will people interact with robots? What are the sort of complementary opportunities for people to have meaningful work um, in a world where uh, work is being made simple, it's being um, less um, onerous, if I can put it that way, and um, there's opportunities still to have what you might call decent work and a decent livelihood at all levels of a society with some degree of, of uh, equality. Talk to us about uh, the Future of Work conference coming up here on campus uh, in June. Um, what is that event? How, how will you be addressing this kind of broad question about what the future of work looks like? Well, much of the discussion about the future of work in its initial phases has been about this um, – uh, the disruptive effects of it and and the potential for, if you will, a dystopian future. Then the other version is the sort of a technology vision of the world in which um, we will all benefit from the availability of this technology. We will have more leisure and we'll live in a gig economy where, you know, we can, you know, have the leisure we need and we can, you know, all become entrepreneurs and we can kind of, you know, build the, the work life that we want around the interests that we you know, that we may have. I think now there's a sort of a sobering uh, uh, up of this kind of the conversation and a coming together, if you will, of the technology people with the labor movement, with, this, with the sort of social policy people to think a little bit more about how do we manage the transition? Let's presume that, you know, um, this is going to be somewhat of the equivalent of the Industrial Revolution in the 1800s, and it's going to carry on through the 21st century, and that it's going to be disruptive, and that, you know, and let's take that as a given. Let's try to identify how it's going to be disruptive, and what are some of the ethical questions that will arise inevitably from this disruption? What are some of the social impact questions that we need to grapple with? What are some of the social policy issues that we need to be thinking of, um, you know, preemptively in some ways to prepare for this? What are the things we need to be thinking about in terms of educating a labor force in a different way? What is it we need to be thinking about in terms of how education and uh, the educational institutions of today, which were designed for an industrial era, need to be redesigned for a digital era? And maybe the models of education and the very structures of education that we have today need to be completely rethought to, to prepare the workforce of the future, to be systems thinkers, to be um, comfortable in a, in a world of uh, – artificial intelligence and, and big data that are comfortable with the sort of coding and design issues that come with that and that um, are comfortable thinking about um, the complementarities uh, in terms of what human intelligence can offer relative to sort of artificial intelligence and how those two worlds come together to make a better and more equitable world. This conference is in, tr in some sense trying to say, um, you know, we are welcoming the digital age. We acknowledge that it's a reality but we want to manage the transition intelligently. We want to make sure that the society is evolving at a pace that keeps up with the technological change and keeps up with the ethical issues and the social policy uh, questions that are going to be um, front and center um, for, our, for our leadership in the, coming, in the coming years. 
and that we're going to be bringing together um, government, uh, business, civil society uh, leaders to talk about these things together so that in some sense we, we, we are operating with a shared vision. just kind of outlined it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What makes this, the future of work, a Notre Dame issue or something that Notre Dame and maybe specifically the Keough School of Global Affairs is well suited to, to take on? Well, I think one of the interesting things about the where this conversation began is in the in the technology centers on the coasts. But what I don't think has happened is that these conversations have not come to the middle of the country where you know, manufacturing is done. It hasn't come to the heartland in quite the same way. And so here we are in Indiana. And Indiana is a state with a very high percentage of uh, manufacturing as a percent of, you know, annual revenue and obviously probably of the tax base for the state. Um, So it's a state where this issue um, should be quite relevant or is quite relevant. Um, And if you look at the state, in many ways, there's uh, you know, it, there is some heavy manufacturing and some, you know, and some advanced manufacturing, but a lot of the state is, is um, smaller scale tool and die shops, um, uh, what you might call sort of a medium scale manufacturing. And these are the kinds of operations that um, with automation could actually tr- be transformed relatively quickly hmm. and perhaps even relatively inexpensively, you know, relative to say a large steel mill or a large you know, advanced manufacturing or uh, operation. And so in some ways, it, you know, it behooves, I think, the leadership in Indiana to be, be taking this on board early and thinking about, you know, how is it going to, you know, to enter and transform the economy in, in this kind of a state with, with a heavy manufacturing uh, commitment. Uh, and so here we are at Notre Dame, where, you know, we are one of the major institutions in the northern part of the state. Um, and um, I, I think it's probably, you know, appropriate for university of our scale to be th- with a large engineering <clears throat> capacity and a and a commitment to a sort of ethical thinking about human development um, and a and a first class business school where all the different components of this can, are are likely to be discussed and frac- and frankly over the last year or so have you know have had a presence on the campus to begin to take this on in a more uh, in a more robust way and I think the role of universities in this uh, at this moment is is really um, important, and it's an important area for us to think about. One hypothesis about it is that there will be so many changes happening so so fast that the traditional model of, of, of education from the industrial era and previous will not be able to keep up with it unless we imagine a world in which um, universities are playing a role of continuous education. Mm. And that the sort of the four-year model of, you know, you get your degree and then you start a life in which those skills are going to carry you forward for the next 50 years, that may not, they may not be the way uh, we live in the future. And that actually we may need to constantly be renewing our skill sets um, so that we stay relevant um, for a job market in which these new jobs are being created and new skills are going to be required to, uh, uh, you know, to assume those kinds of roles. The real issue for all of us is, can society keep up with the technology? And society will keep up with the technology if we're having the conversation about managing the transition effectively. Um, And that's what, at Notre Dame, we're trying to do through this conference. 
Um, and we're hoping to continue that, you know, to be a part of and to be a contributor to this conversation here in Indiana and nationally. Um, and the extent to which these conversations become ubiquitous, I think we'll, as a society, we'll become more confident in our ability to manage this and uh, manage this transition effectively um, and not have the, you know, the, 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 the sort of dystopian world that some, some writers, both fiction writers and, and, uh, and nonfiction writers might, might predict. And so um, that's the encouragement that I give to folks to assume an optimistic future and to work for it. Ray Offenheiser, thank you very much. Great to be with you. I'm Stephen Meehan. I'm a second year MBA student here at Mendoza and a member of the Business on the Frontlines class. I am Sarah Chandler. I'm also a second year uh, Mendoza MBA student and a member of the Business on the Frontlines class serving on Team Brazil. Business on the Front Lines is a second-year MBA course in the Mendoza College of Business. It requires students to apply their training to help areas of the world recovering from conflict or dealing with generational poverty. Often, that means traveling what seems like a world away from campus. In this case, that meant a flight, a two-hour boat trip, a ride in the back of a pickup transporting 31 people in a driving downpour, and a half-hour walk. But then, they were there. This was the Amazon. I think that looking out over uh, its expanse was amazing, and it looks like an ocean. It does not look like a river, uh, or a, it looks like a very, very, very large lake. Um, coming from the Midwest, it, it's very comparable, I think, to the Great Lakes. Business on the Front Lines is in the Amazon because we are partnering with a non-governmental organization called FOSS, which is the Sustainable Amazon Foundation, um, and they uh, work with communities along the Amazon trying to increase uh, their household income and quality of life. Uh, we were specifically focusing on an Amazon uh, flower that is essential and a staple on every table in, the, in Brazil, um, and this is something that they artisanally make um, as part of their day-to-day -day activities. The communities that we saw and visited, uh, they're very committed to the area. Um, it's very important that they do have a strong economy and access to markets um, because it increases their livelihood um, and makes their quality of life better. Uh, they are known as the keepers of the forest and are uh, do receive a government stipend uh, for that, but the more that um, they can, they have access to markets and access to selling their own products, um, the less reliant they are on the government and the more reliant uh, they are on themselves and their own livelihood. And as these communities thrive, they become a stronger line of defense against deforestation of the Amazon rainforest they call home. 
A big part of their economic viability is the production and sale of farina, a yellowish flour-like ingredient with granules slightly thicker than cornmeal. Brazilians use it in baking or sprinkle it over other foods. The Mendoza students are acting as consultants of sorts to see if these communities can optimize their business. It was really important for us, so as part of Business on the Front Lines, we spend two weeks in country, and that was absolutely critical. Um, when you're dealing with organizations that don't have a strong history of record keeping or data keeping or a strong background in accounting, sometimes getting information can be difficult. So getting in country, speaking to people who actually purchase the product on a day-to-day -day basis, people who sell it, uh, potential end customers, as well as the communities that actually make the, uh, the product through from harvest peeling, grinding, uh, toasting over a stove. It was incredibly important for us to understand the cultural aspect of producing farina and uh, all the work that went into each kilo of the product. I think that a lot of the background academic research that we had done was really kind of confirmed in the country. Um, what we didn't really kind of recognize was what um, a community-based activity this was. Um, people came from neighboring communities to make farina. Uh, people came from neighboring cities. They, they, they were children that lived somewhere else but came back because they knew that the family was making farina that day. But it's a very um, social activity and we really kind of saw that firsthand. Um, and that, that tradition in honoring that artisanal production process um, is something that we wanted to continue to honor and made sure that our recommendations really kind of stayed true to honoring that social um, community-based activity. The production is an extremely labor-intensive process. The students saw firsthand the physical toll making farina can take. Farina is made from the root of the cassava plant, which is actually naturally poisonous. To remove the toxins, the roots are soaked for days. Then water is pressed out using a giant seven-foot-long woven sleeve about the diameter of a basketball. The sleeves are stretched progressively tighter until finally the resulting dough is ready to use. From there, the product is toasted over a fire and then finally bagged and sent to market. At least, that's how one community does it. One of the challenges in this consulting work was learning that not every community does it the same way, so not every recommendation could be applied evenly. And that's far from the only challenge. I think how it's different from a traditional um, project is first the language barrier. Only one member of our team spoke Portuguese, so uh, that can tend to be a difficult sort of choke point where everything that we, every piece of information you get tends to be in Portuguese and you have to rely on one team member to uh, put it into English for you. The other is just the availability of information. If you were to go into a consulting project with a Fortune 500 company, for example, you would probably get you know, 10 years of financials and megabytes upon megabytes of data about every transaction they've ever had. That just doesn't exist in the Amazon. So you're dealing with stories and, you know, some guy's notebook that somebody took a picture of with an iPhone when they were visiting. So it was definitely challenging from that perspective, just dealing with the ambiguity, the lack of information and having to fill in uh, when you were in country by asking around. 
And I don't think when you're on site with your client, um, most are along the Amazon or you're standing in, you know, 90 plus degree heat for the <laughs> entire time that you're um, on an engagement. I think that was definitely a unique component of it. When something is unique, it stands out. Whether in an MBA course or on a supermarket shelf, the farina made by these communities is sold under a brand called Riverina, and seeing how it's made gave the students an idea for a differentiator in the marketplace. The Riverina brand is really kind of uh, wrapped up um, in a story, and the story of the Amazon is really what gives it the competitive advantage um, over comparable products um, and larger consumer package good-driven products. So I think that's one thing that I took away that that is really going to make this product project and product really kind of stand out on the shelves is the story um, and that people of the Amazon make this product with their hands and it's a time-tested um, artisanal process that goes into making this Warrenese-style farina. Um, and it's something that is very unique to the region, and you're really um, getting a taste of what it is to be in the Amazon when you eat it. Yeah, so we made a series of recommendations, um, some around their financial management strategy uh, to help the business become a little more profitable so that FOSS could uh, end its financial subsidy and help the entrepreneurs become uh, sustainable and self self-reliant and then we also made a series of recommendations uh, implementing some technological changes that could help reduce some of the physical burden that uh, we've spoken about before reduce some of the back pain maybe some of the lung or eye issues that we saw uh, coming up again and again and then we also made some simple recommendations about agricultural best practices uh, including just spacing of the plants and selecting the right plants. Um, Really pretty simple, straightforward, easy to understand recommendations that they just hadn't quite thought about before. I knew that Brazil was going to be very warm to us, but I didn't know that we were going to leave feeling like we were family with these people. Um, I think one, the views were just really kind of incredible, um, but I didn't, ex- I knew it was going to be lush, but I didn't realize how really lush the forest were going to be and just really how um, to see that diversity in uh, the Amazon. It was really cool, but I really think what truly makes the Amazon um, special is the people. When we were uh, leaving the Amazon and pulling up the boat um, for the last time, on our last like community visit day, um, the Amazon said goodbye to us in an amazing way. We had like a rainbow that we drove through um, to be able to dock the boat. So that was really a unique way to say goodbye to this experience. Notre Dame Stories is produced by the Office of Public Affairs and Communications. 